Um, so an aspect of a god, we all understand that you have, the queen has gods. We'll see them looking in their ridiculous outfits. Sorry, queen. Um, but actually, there was a priestly god that they had in the temple. Okay, so I don't know about you, but I always understood priests to be kind of not warriors, let me put it that way. I feel like I'm very loud. Am I? Am I? Hopefully I won't shout at you. Hey? Phil, can you turn the monitors off? Or somebody who knows? I don't know. Uh. <laughs> okay. All right, so in the beginning, let's go to Genesis. Genesis 1. I'm going to give you an overview of Genesis. So let's just understand Genesis 1 is the big overview of what happens in creation. Genesis 2 is kind of like more detailed in terms of man. And then Genesis 3 speaks about what happens in detail with the fall. Okay, just to help you. Genesis 1. Father, God the Father says, Let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make mankind in our image. We all know this, after our likeness. And let them, please note, have complete authority over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the tame beasts, and over all the earth, and then over everything that creeps over the earth. Okay. All right, so in Genesis 2, God makes man, and what he does is he blesses them, and he says, I want you to be fruitful, I want you to multiply, and I want you to fill the earth. Another way of saying it is I want you to subdue it or rule over the earth. Um, and again, it talks about the fish, the birds, the, the animals, and then the living creatures that creep all over the earth. All right. So please notice that it's mentioning animals as well as living creatures. My mind, that speaks of we're talking about spiritual beings as well as physical beings. Okay. All right, so then God, what God does, he goes, well, I've created this whole earth. He says, I've given you, right in Genesis 2, he says, I've given you this incredible earth, lots and lots of um, trees, and everything that has seed in it is for you to eat. So if there's a plant with a seed in it or a tree that has fruit with a seed in it, that's for your food. And now he says, well, we're going to start off small. Because, you know, to have, to, to be kind of thrust into the earth and said, hey, dude, the whole earth is your problem. Tag your it, I think would be a little bit overwhelming. So God knew that man or Adam and Eve at the stage really needed to grow into the maturity of what their dominion, the rulership of what this world would look like. So he plants them a garden. And then he places man in the garden and he says, this is for you. This is for your delight. Okay. So now with coming into the garden, it's not your father's yacht. You're here to work at it, my boy. You're here. You have dominion. You have rulership over this place. And we're going to start off with a garden. We need you to look after these plants, look after the animals, look after this place. So he gives him a job description. Now, what was amazing that he said in the garden, he said he caused all these trees to start growing. And he said that the trees are not only good for food, but they're also pleasing to the eye. So God knew. Um, Justin went on a marathon thingy this week. What did you do? The Otter Trail. Okay. It was a marathon in the Otter Trail. But he was describing, his legs are feeling it, he was describing the absolute wonder. He actually felt like he was in heaven. That is Eden. Eden is a place of delight, not only for our souls, because we're with God, 
but it's for our eyes too, because we are enjoying, and God made all of that for us. So then God, okay, which way is I'm giving it to you because you're going to be in charge of the, the patuchis. Okay, so God gives boundaries in Eden. All right. We see the first hint of it now. He says, okay, guys, you can eat freely. He uses the word freely from any tree in the garden except for one. We all know this. All right. Okay, so the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can't eat of that. What's interesting is the word knowledge could be from a Hebraic point of view um, translated into discernment. Okay. And then, for in that day, if you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, we think, we think of days like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, sunset, sunrise. That word doesn't mean day like we know today. That word means day as in the day of creation. So what he's saying is, in that day, you will start the process of dying. You will begin to die. It wasn't like she was going to take a bite of, and it's, no, it's not an apple. She was going to take a bite of the fruit, and then they were going to literally die like Ananias and Sapphira. <laughs> it was like, drop down dead. It's not the case. So please remember that, all right? So their bodies, the, the creation starts a process of death when they ate of the fruit. Okay. Let's think about this. Why would God have to go have a tree that is the knowledge of good and evil in an environment where, let's be honest, it's supposed to be perfect and ideal? The garden, God's created it. Evil's not, sin hasn't entered, and yet he's got a tree in the middle of the garden, and now we see the glimmer of why we need a boundary. We need a glimmer of why there needs to be a God, a guarding against something. And the suggestion there is evil. God, when God created the world, we all know the story. It's like a Bible, you know, the Sunday school Bible stories are helpful, but they're unhelpful. So we all know, you know, God made, on the first day, he did this, and the second day, and all that. But the thing is that, do we understand that when, every time God said, this is good, that was his pronouncement of judgment over the earth. God said, this is good. And when he made mankind, his judgment over mankind was that we are very good. He approved of it. He approves of us. So you start out, we start out in this incredible environment where we're talking about the, the, the environment that they breathed was that they breathe the presence of God every day. And yet they still made mistakes. Stuff happened. So, why do you think, I started to ask the question, well, why did God have to, in many ways, give a restriction? And I've always thought, and I do believe it is part of the thing, is that in order to have experience love, we need to be able to have a choice. So the tree in the middle of the garden, the two trees in the middle of the garden were the one saying no is our little no, and that means we have a choice because God wants us to choose him, which is very true. The other aspect is, is that within anything that God has created, because he's an incredibly loving God and he's good and he's gracious, 
He's also made us to be overcomers. Remember, it says to us that we need to take dominion over the rest of the world. The rest of the world, from what you can gather with the language there, was quite wild. You had tame animals for Adam and Eve, but out there, beyond the garden, was the suggestion not, not only was there tame wild animals and beasts, but you had living creatures that were like the snake. So God already knew when he created man that Satan was around. He knew that evil was there. He had already fallen. So he already knew we needed guarding to guard against, even though it was in an ideal environment. So let's look at the, the picture. So the word Shema means to guard. So, the, okay, Hebrew language is a beautiful language. It sounds funny though. <laughs> so from what I understand, you have the speaking language, which you then spit all over people. Now I'm just te- teasing. Then you have, because it's a lot of, it's quite guttural. Then you have the, it's a pictorial language. And then every letter has a picture that helps with the meaning of what the word means. So each letter will add to the value and the depth of what that word means. So the picture word for Shema is what they call a sheepfold. So what the shepherds used to do was they would grab thorn bushes and create a corral around it and then put the sheep inside and that was for their protection. It wasn't to hem the sheep in because they were being naughty brats, but it was probably to keep them there. Some, you know, there was always one. So it was to prevent from the predators outside coming in. The same picture, the same word that God says to him, you must guard the garden, means that God with his words is saying, Adam, Eve, you need to guard this because there is a predator out there and he's coming for you. Don't let the guy in. All right. So Genesis 3 actually tells us the reason why we need to guard. Genesis 3 speaks of the snake. It's not a real snake. It wasn't like a physical snake. That world was the, the spiritual the, and, the, and the physical were merged into one. They experienced it all together. Our Western mindsets and our, with, through the death of our spiritual nat- nature, through the fall, we stop being able to see the, in twofold through that world. So my first question is, why was the snake in the garden in the first place? Do you think he should have been there? No, I don't think so. I don't think that's what God created. He was described as cunning and crafty. So his nature was cunning. So he wangled his way into the garden through a conversation. So cunning means to attain or to seek your own gain by devious means. This guy was devious. So now the creature's in the garden. And then he asks Eve, can it really be that God has said, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? A very clever question. First of all, he starts with like, did God really say? It's like, are you sure? So he's immediately casting doubt into the words of God. Then he goes, he's quite clever. So he goes, I'm sure God said you can't have anything. Well, there's an implication that 
The withholding, that little one little no, means that God is withholding on you. He's got something he's keeping back from you. And it subtly goes into questioning God's authority. Did he really say? Don't we do that? We live in life like subtly believing the lie of the enemy, that God is withholding from us some kind of goodness in our lives because of what's going on. We have this problem, and Eve had the problem as well, even though she lived in this glorious place. Okay, so, next slide. So, Eve's first problem was she tolerated the voice of the enemy. When we tolerate the voice of the enemy, we're going to create problems for ourselves because we immediately start doubting what God has said. Her next problem was she engaged him. So, Jesus gives us an incredible example when he's in the wilderness. He doesn't, the enemy came at him. He's now in the less than ideal place where he's hungry. He hasn't eaten. He hasn't drunk any water. It's been a long time. The Bible says he's tired and he's weak. So less than ideal. He doesn't engage the voice of the enemy with a conversation to try and defend God's words. All he says it is written, and then quotes what God said. Funny thing, the enemy just tried another way. And then all Jesus goes is, it is written, and then quotes it. And then he does it a third time, and Jesus goes, it is written. There's no emotion. He doesn't get angry. He just merely quotes the truth. We have to learn to have truth encounters with the enemy rather than power encounters with him. We can't outpower him, but we certainly can outtruth him. Okay. You see, Eve never rebuked him. She never said, don't speak to me. She never took her authority that she actually had over him and exercised that. She tried to now, in many ways, I think she tried to actually defend God's words. In her defense of God's words, you can go to the next slide. Okay. So this is an internal problem that we have. So Shema, so that, the, there's two aspects of guarding. The keeping the predator out from coming in. The next one is to keep watch over God's words. And Eve never did that either. So to keep or to keep watch over means we take God's words, what he said, and we keep with careful consideration and we guard that. Some, some translations talk about how we cling to it. We hold on to it. That's what we, that is what God is asking us to do as guardians for our own souls as well as the enemy out there. It's a careful observation. And it's to keep watch over our own hearts. So you see, Eve wasn't careful in holding God's words in the purity of what God had said to her. So she changes his words. 
She added some stuff and she took some stuff away. So if you understand, if you read through the text, she says, God says you may eat freely. That, by the way, includes the tree of life. It doesn't say they couldn't eat of the tree of life. So they had access to life, the fruit of that. Um, God says you may eat freely of every tree except for one. So she goes, well, um, yeah, God said that we, we can't eat. So she removes the word freely. She removes his abundance. The other thing she does is she adds to it. She goes, yeah, and if we, we're not allowed to eat from it and we're not allowed to touch it. God never said don't touch it. He just said don't eat of it. So when we remove stuff from God's words, we remove his goodness, his abundance from the, the nature of who he is, and then when we add to it, we, we, we make him sound more harsh. This is the, where we have to be very careful in guarding, because when you guard the word, what you're doing is, for ourselves, we understand when we take away stuff that God has given us freely, we start to think that he's withholding from us. But then to the world, when we add things to his words, we add to his character that isn't him, we start to make the world understand that God is more harsh than what he really is. Because of her engagement with Satan and the distortion of the lies, she's now starting to she chooses not to go back to the source. It doesn't say she went, ha, hold on, stop talking. And then, God, she had access to God. She had access to Adam. She could have gone back and said, listen, I'm feeling very confused right now. I don't understand what's going on. He's asked me a question that caused me to doubt. Can you help me? She never did that. When we don't go back to the source... We're going to become more and more tempted to give into the lie. And then her, her final thing was as she was entertaining the thought of now eating this fruit, her words were, well, sure, it looks really nice. Now it's pleasing to her eye. Remember, God had said every other tree was there for the, for the pleasure of their eyes for the pleasure of their souls. Now suddenly she's reduced this entire garden, this entire lavish thing, down to one tree. And the fruit of it, which she says she can't touch, which isn't true, and now she's like, ooh, that looks nice. Isn't that what sin does to us? It reduces the, the stuff that we do have, the abundance that we have in God, and it reduces us to the one thing that we believe we are for forbidden from. And that makes it enticing. You can go to the next. So in her considering of, op when, when we consider the offer of the enemy's lies, what we do is we open ourselves up to three areas of temptation. Her, she opened up her mind. So she appealed to her physical appetites. This is good food. She kind of forgot about all the other food out there because this was the one thing she wanted. It appealed to her, she opened up in terms of her emotions, her emotional desires. Well, I want this because it's pleasant, it's nice, it's desirable. And then her will. He appealed to her intellect, 
her pride. Well, you're going to know now, you're going to become like God because you're going to know things like he is, like he does. So when we are tempted with sin, depending on who our personalities are, we will all be tempted in one of these areas. So Dale and I always laugh about me. So when, we, when I come for a, um, a preach, I always feel insecure because I feel like I don't have enough knowledge. I'm a five. What do I do? I gain knowledge. Okay. Dale, being a four, I'm sorry, Dale, picking on you because you was a birthday yesterday. What he would do is it's all about his emotion. And then for some other people, it may be about your intellect or the fact is you feel more in control and you want to gain something in terms of power, however it will work. All of that, the enemy knows you. He's been doing this for a long time. He knows who you are and he knows what your calling is, so he's going to try and appeal to that thing, that area of weakness that you have. So at the end of the day, no matter how she played it, she knew deep down that eating that fruit was wrong. You can justify it. She justified it to the point where she was able to disregard God's word. But at the end of the day, she knew that taking that fruit and eating it was wrong. So what did she do? She thought, flip, I better not be on my own on this. (laughs) Yeah, Adam, (laughs) have some. Okay, so Eve always gets a lot of um, flack when it comes to, um, you know, the temptation. Everybody's like, poor Eve. Okay, so we've worked through what she, her problems were. Some people say that Adam was there. Some people say he wasn't there. That's not the point. The point is, whose voice did he listen to? So Adam's sin, which is quite mind-blowing, was that he chose to place Eve's voice above God's voice. You see, you can have people in the world who are desperate for, like Eve, who the temptation is like, I want to know more, I want to gain more, this is for my internal thing. But then you have other people in the world, and it's all about what other people think, rather than what God thinks. So we equally all carry this in ourselves. So we now know what happens. If you've read your Bibles, you know that they get banished from the garden. It sounds very harsh. It sounds very severe. And everybody, like all the mercy guys are like, oh, shame, that's so horrible. Now they're living in the wilderness and it's not nice. And now God's rejected them. That's not the case. God says, we can't leave them in this state. If they are now to eat the fruit of the tree of life, they're going to stay like this forever. And because I love them, I'm going to have to set up a new God because they weren't able to God. So he sends them out of the garden and then he says, great, now we're going to put a cherubim. This is the first time you see angels speaking of, uh, where they talk about angels apart from Satan in the Bible. And a cherubim is that which those angels, I think there's only about four of them that actually are able to be close to God in his presence in heaven. And then it says, it doesn't say, I've checked this, it doesn't say that the cherubim were the ones holding the sword. It just says there was a flaming sword that was placed with the cherubim, two things placed, and the flaming sword moved every which way. 
So it basically, in other words, blocked off every avenue to get to, back to the tree of life. So what has this got to do with the temple? So a lot of people believe that the Levites, so the Levites are the tribe who were the priests. They weren't the high priests, although Aaron came from the Levite tribes, but they were assistant priests in the temple. But if you read about these guys, you actually think that these guys were quite scary. Okay, so the first kind of story that we hear about them, um, it's Genesis 34, is that Levi and his brothers get up to a whole bunch of evil, let me say that. Okay, so we can understand what happens. They find out that their sister gets raped. So in defense, they overreact, and instead of going to get the guys who did it, they just decide, let's just slaughter the entire village. Granted, the sister was raped, that's hectic. But their father has a very interesting thing. Instead of going, well done, boys, you know, a little bit too much, but good job, you defended your sister's honor. He goes, I don't even want to be in your... So when he gave his blessing, Japheth gave his blessing when he was on his deathbed, he even says, I don't even want to be with these guys. And as a result, instead of being blessed with land, they get scattered to, I think it's about 48 cities. They weren't allowed to inherit land. All because they defended their, their sister's honor. Okay, which tells us that they're quite violent and they were, weren't able to control their indignation of their sister. It kind of went over and above. Um, Jacob says he curses their anger and their wrath. And he says it was cruel and their weapons of violence are their swords. So they lose out on inheriting land. The second time we hear about the, the, um, the Levites, so now we have Mount Sinai. Okay, the Israelites are a funny bunch of people. I'm sure we, we're just as bad. So they are all waiting for Moses. Moses has gone up the mountain. They have chosen, ironically, not to go up with Moses. They could have, but they didn't. They chose to stay down. Aaron's with them as well. It sounds like if you read the text that Joshua's gone up with Moses to at least halfway. Now the guys are bored and they're impatient and they're whining. So they go to Aaron and they say, Aaron, we're bored. Moses is not coming back. God has left us. What are we going to do? So he says, okay, let's collect all the gold. The Bible is hysterical if you really read some of the text because if you read the nuances of it, this is, this is funny. So Aaron goes, you know, collect all the gold, and then suddenly there was, uh, when Moses asked him what happened here, he goes, I don't know, we collected all the gold, we put it into a fire, and out jumped a golden calf. Like, I didn't have anything to do with it. He was a little bit like Adam in this regard. He was like, because he gave into the wishes of the people. So he listened to the voice of the people instead of to the, the voice of God. The people wanted to be like, they wanted to go back to Egypt, and they were like, God, oh, life is so much better. They were looking at God is withholding from us, just like Eve did. They were like, this isn't good. God isn't good. We have to wait too long. And when we, we have a huge problem in our, the waiting of a delay, that we can get to that point like Eve did and start then blaming God and, make, and 
almost as if he's withholding from us his goodness. So Moses is like, what the heck is going on here? Aaron goes, oop, it just jumped out. You know, miraculously just made itself. And Moses goes, come on, guys. Who is on God's side? Who will stand with, not with Moses, who will stand with God? And he says, come to me. And the only tribe that stands out is this Levite tribe. I don't know if they would have stayed up if they knew what God was going to ask of them. Maybe they might have delayed it a bit. So God says to them through Moses, and he says, put on your sword, on your side, each of you, and go to and fro, gate to gate, throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother, his companion, and his neighbor. And that day they killed 3,000 men. But in their obedience to, in many ways, an incredibly horrific, violent act, guess what? They get the priesthood. God's like, these guys, they're mine. They don't inherit land, they inherit God. That's what it says. The language, however, of the way they were to use their swords and going backwards and forwards reminded me of the language of that sword that's guarding the way back to the tree of life. So God takes very seriously this thing of guarding and guarding his word. The Levites were told, they were special guardians, they were told to keep watch over the tabernacle, keep guard over it, and of the testimony, and they were the guys who also were to keep watch over the worship of Yahweh throughout Israelites. Because they didn't have land, they were scattered throughout Israel. They were the guys who moved the Ark of the Covenant when the camp moved, when the tabernacle moved. So Malachi 2, 7, it says, For all the priest's lips should guard and keep pure the knowledge of God's law. So a priest's job is to keep, not only to keep predators out, but to keep the purity of God's word amongst the people. The, if we go back to the garden, everything was there for Adam and Eve. The tree of life was their food source and their delight. And what's interesting is, so God equates with the tree of life with food, with nourishment for our spiritual souls. And then in the biblical times, a God was often the cook. You want him to like you, hey? <laughs> Because obviously they are guarding because what, what can kill you? If poison. So if a king had somebody who was a cook, he was guarding him. We need to guard the word of God like the same as if we don't want it to be unpure. And we need to guard it for other people. What comes out of our mouths of what we say God, who God is, we need to make sure that that is pure and reveals his nature and his character and his love and his goodness to others. In Psalms, David says God, he asks God to set a guard over his mouth. We are told in Psalms again that we need to guard our hearts 
And in Proverbs 19, it says, He who keeps or obeys the commandments of God, guards his life. And then in 1 Corinthians 16, it says, We are told to be on our guard, to stand firm in our faith, to be courageous, to be strong. And then Timothy is told by Paul to guard in a very careful and consistent manner what has been entrusted into his care. So how does this line up with Jesus? And some of the prophetic words or the things that came through this morning speaks about who Jesus is. So the Bible does describe Jesus as the word made flesh. So if you go, John 1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was Christ. I'm reading from the Amplified. This is just a precy of, of that. The word was with God, and the word was God himself. He entered into the very world he created, yet the world was unaware. He came to the very people he created, to those who should have recognized him, but they did not receive him. But to those who embraced him, he took hold of his name. So if we embrace him and take hold of his name, they were given authority to become children of God. So that's in Hebrews. Revelations says, out of his mouth, so it says, first of all, it says, describes Jesus as, I saw someone like the Son of Man, Jesus in his humanity. And it goes on to describe what he's wearing, the, the robe and the sash, and his hair was white, glistening snow. But then it says, out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. And then in Revelations 19, it says, Jesus was robed with a, clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name was the Word of God. So, if Jesus, and there's many other texts, I just took these three for the, for the sake of time, but if Jesus is the Word, he was in the beginning, and we are told to guard God's words, God's commandments. What I want to bring to today is a challenge of our attitude towards the Word of God. So my challenge is, because the Bible reveals perfectly who Jesus and God is, the Bible is always in agreement with the goodness of God. Remember, it starts out with God saying, this is good. The judgment of God is good over us. Why do we have such a problem in a day and age where we are bombarded with information all the time? In fact, we have more books written helping us explain the book, the Bible, than any, any time beforehand. And yet we don't read, we are illiterate when it comes to the Bible. This challenged me to the core. Because I do love reading the Bible, but I go through times when I'm like, Ugh. you know what it's like when you've got to go to gym? <laughs> or you've got to eat healthy food and you've got junk food? Same thing. So I've been on this strict eating plan. I'm not saying diet. It's an eating plan just to help me overcome candida. My kids go, Mom, what can you have? <laughs> I'm like, okay, it's a small amount. The list that I'm allowed is smaller than the list I'm not allowed. Okay, so. But the other day, what I found I was doing was I started to go finding the, the junk food within the small list that I could have. I don't know if you, you find you can do that. Hey? And what I stopped doing was eating nutritious food to keep me 
strong and healthy. Then I was starting to feel tired and what, what, what. I was like, this diet doesn't work and it's not helping. Then I realized I stopped eating the nutritious food over and above. Okay, I was piling popcorn down my throat because that was the only thing I could, like, snack I could have. And it was easy. Let me make some popcorn. I'm doing it in coconut oil and it's Himalayan salt. But at the end of the day, it's not nutritious for me to eat the whole day and nothing else. That's what we do with the Word of God. We find the popcorn, don't we? So we like, we go into Instagram or we go into Facebook and we find one little saying, you know, like Twitter, reduce it to 148 characters. That's me with the word for today. We can't do that. It is not nutritious enough. We have to find the nutritious value of the word for ourselves, because the word is described as bread. The word is described as fruit. It's stuff we need to eat every single day, daily, more than once a day, actually, I'm sorry to say. If we want to maintain and we want to grow strong in maturity, we have to know what the Bible is saying about who God is, who we are, and we have to feed our spiritual man. Popcorn won't work. We won't grow. And that's what's happening in the church. The church isn't maturing. Therefore, we're not impacting the world out there. Jesus, do we believe that Jesus still manifests himself in the word today? Do we believe that? Do we believe that the Bible is true from beginning to end? Some of the stories in there are hectic. Do we believe it? But do we ultimately, do we believe that what it reveals is the goodness and the, the love of God has for us? The redemption story, do we believe that about the Bible? Do you realize that Jesus submitted himself entirely to the scriptures? So I was thinking about it. He, was, he, he only had public ministry for three years. At the age of 12, he was found in the temple. Remember when his mom and dad couldn't find him? I think he was 12 at the time. They found him teaching on what? The word of God in the temple. And they were all astonished at his authority. And he was 12. Guys, we have no excuse. We are supposed to be followers and disciples of Jesus. Do you know that this is proof of our discipleship, the Bible. This reveals our attitudes. So our attitudes towards the Word is our attitude, will reveal our attitudes towards God himself. So do we understand that these boundaries, this guarding, is all for our well-being? It's for our protection. And guess what? It's also for our, protect, our victory. So I know there's some of you that are thinking, oh, the Bible's going to ruin my, my fun. You know, the sevens? <laughs> okay, so the sevens believe that I don't want to read the word because God might say I can't do something and not have fun because he's going to want to ruin my fun. Hey, Brucey. 
But you see, it isn't punishment because we don't obey. It's because it's for our good. How many, I mean, I don't know, if those who have kids, you often say to your kids, my sweetheart, you really can't walk in the fire. And they're like, oh, you're just ruining our fun. It's for your own good. I nearly said another word, but I didn't. The thing is that we have to understand that the word of God leads us to life. G.K. Chesterton. If you look up his quotes, he's actually quite a funny guy. Anyway, so he says, when you remove a fence, always pause long enough to ask the question why it was put there in the first place. We've got to, before we remove the fence of the word, because it offends our hearts, we have to ask the question, why did God put that in the first place? If he is a good father who wants to love us. Do you remember the Shema, the sheepfold? It's a hedge of protection. Okay. So, I talked about the offense of the Bible. So, Derek Prince says, our attitude towards God's word is your attitude towards God himself. So, it exposes two attitudes in us. Either you're going to be humble and you're going to be desired to receive instruction from God, (laughs) or there's pride. I'm sorry, there's only two. (laughs) I try to find another one. There's only two. A pride, the desire to be independent of God and his words and his ways. And that verse that uh, Steve read in Hebrews, it says, For the word of God speaks... For the word that God speaks is alive and full of power, making it active, operative, energizing, and effective. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating to the dividing line of the breath of life, which is our soul, and the immortal spirit, and to the joints and to the marrow, to the deepest parts of our nature. It exposes, shifts, analyzes, and judges the very thoughts and purposes of our hearts. Did you know that God took the judgment and he gave it over to Jesus? I can't remember the text offhand right now. And then Jesus says to, when he came, he says, Now I haven't come to judge the world, I've come to save the world. Guess what? Jesus hands over the judgment to the word of God. It's that thing, that two-edged sword to go in and judge our motives and our hearts. That's one of the reasons why we don't want to read it. Hey, we take offense and we're like, I don't want to, no, it's too much. But keeping in mind, it's the pathway to life. Okay. Um, All right, so I have to deal with a word. So the Bible, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. I don't like that one. Because he says, if you don't obey me, you don't love me. Okay, so that, that's quite harsh. And I don't like the word obey. Unless it's my children, then they must listen and obey me. So the Webster's Dictionary says, to obey means do to someone, to do what someone tells you to do, or it's a rule or law that makes you, says you must do something. 
And it has like a military connotation to it. You know, it's like that mindless, follow the orders or else. You comply, you submit, you, you governed by this. You do what is expected and you take my orders. So that's our Western mindset of obeying, right? Huh? Don't the, the women, all, you can always see the shudder in the, the, the audience when we say, okay, wives, obey your husbands. It's like, ooh, Mufasa. Okay. So the next thing, this is a pictorial breakdown. It's too complicated for me to explain each one individually what obey means in the Hebrew language. So this is kind of like a pictorial view of what obey means. So each one of us is in a battle, in a war. It's either war to crush and destroy what is evil or war what is against what is good. We are held responsible for who we listen to. If we listen to the enemy, we are fighting a battle on the side of all that is evil. I'm going on. I just gave you the... We can't say that we do not know the difference between good and evil and what is right and what is wrong. The tree of knowledge has opened that up for us with an understanding of what good and evil is. In addition to this knowledge of good and evil, we also have the experience of good and evil. This is, all of this is a hidden part of the picture of what obedience is. That we simply translate into the word obey. See, when Eve engaged and listened to Satan and Adam listened to the voice of Eve, the root in Adam wasn't that he chose her voice. The root was that he loved her more than he loved God. Deuteronomy 6 says, hear, O Israel. When, when they say hear, like when they go, you know, truly, truly, or it's like, okay, guys, this is important. Listen. Lace to know. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments I give to you today are to be on your hearts. The Ten Commandments weren't like a list of things that you, you have to do. They were like, guys, if you love me, you'll obey me. And I'm asking you to love me with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. So, you can go. Hebrew, the single word means the following. To hear and to listen. To battle for or battle against evil. It's a warfare for or warfare against what is good. It's the knowledge of good and evil. It's personal responsibility. It is evil defeated by the obedience of the Son of God. And obedience is the byproduct of love. Adam disobeyed, but before he disobeyed, the reason why he disobeyed is because he gave his heart away to another that wasn't God. Last Adam, Jesus, he obeyed because he loved his heavenly Father above all else. 
That's the context when Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. Our Western mindset has a problem with this obeying aspect because we do the following. We go to, okay, so we're going to hear what God is going to say. Then we need to evaluate the command. Do we understand? Why is he saying this? Why is he asking us? It has to be based on our understanding. Then we make a choice to obey based on our evaluation. Is this what I think is going to be good for me or isn't? It's not a, this isn't, shouldn't be our process. We can't get to a place of first understanding then to obey. In our obedience, we get to understand who God is and how gracious he is. If we planted the church because I evaluated on my reasoning and logic, we wouldn't have the church here today. I would have said no, I promise you. In fact, I was saying no up until a point. (laughs) You see, he gives us his instructions so that we might live life well. It's not so, we have to choose in our obedience that we are going to choose that he is the basis, the foundation is he is good, he is love, he loves me, and he wants the best for me. That has to be under the foundation of all your obedient yeses to God. It makes it much easier. I sure... I I didn't write down the the text. It says, I assure you, most that the person, we'll just move on, the person whose ears are open to my words, who listens to my message, and believes, and trusts, and clings, and relies on him, he who sent me possesses now eternal life. So in other words, when you choose to open your ears, you hear what God is saying, you choose to trust, cling, rely on, and do everything else on his goodness and his love, that we will possess eternal life. And this is what I was saying about Jesus has handed over judgment to the word. It says, and he does not come into judgment. He does not incur the sentence of judgment, nor will he come under condemnation. But he has already passed over out of death into life. So what does God require of us? There's a beautiful Hebrew terminology. I'm not going to even try and say it. because. But the, the English version of it is that God wants a hearing heart. He wants our hearing hearts. Where we are committed to, intending to, do whatever he's asking of us. And that that heart is always rooted in God's love. And I can't carry on without saying that we can't do this without Holy Spirit. See, when Eve and Adam and Eve were both trying to be independent of God, they always had Holy Spirit with them. When God came back into the garden after they had eaten the fruits, and he's walking along this. It sounded like, so the English text says that he walked you know, along the cool of the day, but it's not quite that. So the picture is, they heard the wind coming through the garden. That's Holy Spirit. And then it says, that's the, the rach, the, 
breath of God. And God didn't go, Adam, where are you? You stupid. I'm so disappointed. He goes, Adam, I can feel I've lost, you've lost my heart. I don't feel you in my heart anymore. That's the language that God is saying there. So some of us have stepped out of his heart. And in order to know what his heart is, you have to go and read this, the Bible. Read it chunks at a time. Read Hebrews. If you don't understand, get the Passion Translation. I don't get any commission, I promise. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you can, just buy the Psalms and the Proverbs and they have a devotion and read a few Psalms a day. Just to find his heart again if that's what you feel like you've lost today. You see, even in a, perf- in a perfect environment, we would get it wrong without the work of the Holy Spirit. We would go to idolatry every time. We need Holy Spirit, the Spirit and the Word, in order to be able to live life that God has called us to. So I want to... Oh, you've missed a few. So Revelation, I've just taken a few highlights out. Revelations 2.7 says, To him who overcomes, who is victorious, I will grant to eat the fruit of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We actually, through Jesus, who is our overcomer, who makes us victorious in overcoming, through his word, are able to gain and get eat of the fruit today. Now. We rest in Jesus' victory. We don't fight that battle. But we do our utmost to get to know him through his word. We take our part of our responsibility of carefully considering, watching over, his words, and we eat it like spiritual food every day. So Ravi Zechariah, when Gary spoke of that story, he, he, he gave a, a quite a, um, I'm not ending off with a funny story, I'm sorry. See, he asks a question, if you were to have a stranger come live with you in your home, who was to watch and observe your spiritual, your devotional life. What would their decision be about the character and the nature of the God you serve? And God took it another step forward, which felt like a sword through me. He said, Louise, your children, they're observing you, they're watching you. What is the nature? What nature am I showing them? about who, the God that I serve, to them. I don't know. You can have a lot of reasons why, a lot of blockages as to why you don't read the Bible. And I am assuming a lot here. 
There are people who do read it. But are we, like um, I think Steve said in the prayer meeting, are we reading more books written by other people? Are we listening to more podcasts? Are we reading more Facebook or more novels or whatever your escapism that you're using to avoid being with and getting to know the one? I know we're all in different stages of our lives, but today, with our technology, it is possible. Are you feeding and nourishing your spirit man even more than your physical body?